Okay, let's get started. That last panel was something of a downer. <laughs> try to raise it up a little bit here, talk about the Constitution and the branch of government where perhaps we have the greatest hope. Um, this is a uh, panel, that, and by the way, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. I see we've got a lot of new people here today from yesterday. I'm going in my opening remarks say a little bit repeat of what I did yesterday, but just a little bit. Uh, this panel is on uh, the growth and future of the libertarian legal movement. And it seems to me that we have uh, uh, considerable um, grounds for uh, hope in that area. And Peter has asked me to uh, open with um, just a few remarks about what we have done here at Cato to bring about the uh, growth uh, and, we hope, the future of the libertarian legal movement. <clears throat> Charles Murray uh, started out uh, exactly right with the idea that um, back in the 50s, 60s, the post-war era, the conservative slash libertarian movement was um, pretty uh, small. Uh, and it grew gradually over that period but the last leg of it to grow, one could think, was the legal movement uh, because it um, came out of the progressive uh, movement's uh, rethinking of the Constitution, literally turning the Constitution on its head in the Constitutional Revolution of 1937-1938, which left us with a Supreme Court that was largely deferential to the political branches. But then in the 50s, the court got its second win, uh, and in many cases, uh, not a moment too soon with respect to civil liberties, criminal uh, uh, procedure, and certain other areas. But it also overshot the mark. Uh, there was the liberal uh, judicial activism that uh, conservatives were concerned about. They called for judicial restraint, and that was the, essentially the debate uh, going into the late 60s and through the 70s. In the mid-70s, we started to see the beginnings of the libertarian response to these two schools, um, both of which we said a pox on both your houses. Uh, I was out at the University of Chicago doing my doctorate, working on the theory of rights. Bernie Segan was working on his book, uh, Economic Liberties and the Constitution. And the idea in both cases, and then with Richard Epstein over at the law school at Chicago, later on Ber um, Randy Barnett, who was then a law student at Harvard, the idea was to call on the court to be more active, to be more engaged, not the Justice Brennan engagement where you're inventing rights out of whole cloth, uh, and certainly not the pacifism or, or deference to the political branches that we saw from the conservatives, but rather engagement in restoring the original constitution of enumerated powers in Congress and rights both, both enumerated and unenumerated as against the federal government and the state governments under the 14th Amendment. And that was the agenda that we sought to bring about. Uh, yesterday I mentioned the, um, the Cato uh, Conference in 1984 on Economic Liberties and the Judiciary, which, op which uh, I sketched out the program for that on the back of a paper napkin uh, at a lunch with Ed Crane and uh, Jim Dorn in 1983. The conference was held in 84. It was a standing room only conference. It opened with a scintillating debate between then Judge Antonin Scalia, representing the conservative restraint side, and Richard Epstein, representing the libertarian judicial engagement side. There followed the full conference. Cato published the proceedings in 85. The American Bar Association had a bicentennial program on economic liberties in the judiciary in 1987. In, uh, by, uh, in the bicentennial of the Constitution. In 1991, they had a, uh, another bicentennial program on the Bill of Rights. Uh, Randy Barnett and I spoke at that on the forgotten Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Uh, in 89, January of 89, Cato established the Center for Constitutional Studies. Uh, I did when I came, uh, left the, Justi the Justice Department during the Reagan administration to establish the center. 
Uh, we then uh, began inviting all manner of people to speak at Cato, judges, lawyers, uh, and, and so forth. And um, gradually, the debate shifted. It shifted uh, noticeably in 1995 when the court, for the first time, revived the doctrine of enumerated powers, the idea that Congress has only limited enumerated powers. Indeed, we published a study in 1994 uh, that, uh, that was read, the, the, the title of which was Kids, Guns, and Schools is the court ready for constitutional government? And uh, that we rifled into all the clerks and the justices. And this was a, a year, uh, just a few months later, uh, they came down with that decision. And for the first time in 58 years, told Congress that it didn't have the power to regulate anything it wanted to under the Commerce Clause. Uh, that continued with another decision in, 19, er, in 2000. Uh, we lost then in 2005 with the California medical marijuana case, but then it was revived again in the Obamacare decision of 2012, at least with respect to the Commerce Clause. On the right side, we've had several decisions over the years where the court is rediscovering unenumerated rights. So we are seeing the debate change among the justices on the Supreme Court. You can no longer set forth the pure judicial restraint school of thought that you could set forth in the 50s, 60s, and 70s from the conservative side. At the same time, liberals are screaming that the conservative slash libertarians on the court are engaged in judicial activism. That tells us our ideas are taking hold. And so what we're going to do now is have our folks here um, expand on these ideas. I've asked them to do so in three separate areas, talk about the foundation for this and then where we're going for the future. And I'm going to introduce each of our speakers before he speaks. Uh, we were originally uh, set to have um, a panel here speaking from the podium, but since uh, we couldn't change the furniture around at the last moment, we're going to be speaking from our chairs. But they're going to do their roughly 10-minute set pieces. We'll have a little discussion, and then I hope we'll have a few minutes to open it up to questions from you folks. We're going to start with uh, Jonathan Adler, who is a professor at Case Western uh, University School of Law uh, in Cleveland. Uh, he is uh, also an adjunct scholar here at Cato and is a member of the board of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, he was also a Cato intern between his junior and, and senior years at Yale, and uh, that is where, he won, where we like to believe he got his intellectual start in the direction he's gone ever since. He's been a prolific uh, author. Uh, he's the co-author of seven books, including Business and the Roberts Court, uh, coming out from Oxford just last year, and Rebuilding the Ark, New Perspectives on Endangered Species uh, Act Reform. So with that, um, Jonathan, you are uh, tasked with discussing these issues as they play out and as the people uh, uh, address them in the academic world, the law schools in particular. All right, well, uh, thank you, Roger. It's certainly a pleasure to be back. Uh, apparently, I was a controversial intern back then. I had a, because I'd been at Yale in the late 80s and, and would often have uh, idiosyncratic buttons on my, on my book bag, I had a, a Bork Yes button, which, which I think Roger and, and, and Ed Crane and some others thought was very suspicious. Um, uh, and uh, I had to write a, one of my assignments as an intern was to uh, write a review of a book by, that Cato had published by Stephen Macedo called The New Right Versus the Constitution. And apparently I passed. I wasn't fired after I wrote the review. So, um, and they've had me back. Uh, and it's great to be here. Um, so I'm going to say a little bit about uh, libertarian legal views in the academy. And um, I hope to be a little more uplifting than the last panel. Um, but I, I should say up front that I, I have, there's both good news and bad news about um, the way libertarian views are um, accepted in the academy, the extent to which they're, they're prominent in the academy. I'll start with the bad news so I can end on, on a little bit of a, a positive note. Um, first, as, as has been well documented, um, law school faculties, like uh, many university faculties, are certainly dominated by, we, by what we might characterize as progressive liberalism, 
Uh, there have been studies looking at hiring, at, at publication, at, uh, uh, camp, uh, at all sorts of different things showing that there is a fairly dominant, what a recent paper refers to as an ideological monoculture uh, on law school faculties. There are a handful of schools, George Mason, uh, Notre Dame, Pepperdine, where that, that diverge from uh, the dominance of progressive liberalism on the faculties. Uh, but as a general matter, um, uh, only about 15% uh, of faculty members at, at schools appear to be what we might characterize uh, as right of center. Now, I should say the majority of the, that 15% appear to be folks that certainly are a libertarian on, on, or, or fairly free market on economic issues, and a majority of them are, are fairly uh, libertarian or tolerant uh, on, on social issues as well. Um, studies trying to, to break down um, the, the worldviews of faculty members show that, that um, what we might characterize as religious conservatives or, or traditionalist conservatives uh, are probably the most underrepresented uh, ideological group on faculties based on, on what we can see. Um, and this, this does compare with uh, the legal profession. The legal profession does appear to be uh, more progressive than uh, other parts or other professions or other occupations. Uh, but studies that try and that use the same methodology show about 35% of lawyers uh, uh, do things that would, would, would indicate that they are right of center compared to about 15% of law school faculty members. Uh, on law schools, this varies by subject matter, as you might expect. In environmental law, <coughs> where I do a lot of work, there are like three of us um, in the country. Um, <laughs> maybe four. Um, uh, and areas like uh, business associations, antitrust, uh, a lot of areas relating to economic regulation, uh, you certainly see a, a much broader uh, range of, of, of faculty members who are a right of center. And you certainly see that in, in private law areas, traditional areas like property and contracts, areas that aren't necessarily as overtly policy oriented, where one can have a scholarly agenda without necessarily outing themselves uh, as, as uh, being uh, something of a heretic. Um, there is reason to believe this does have an effect on hiring. Uh, there are studies that seem to indicate that people that are conservative or libertarian uh, tend to enter the academy with, with stronger credentials than people that have similar records and tend to uh, publish articles that are cited more widely um, than their uh, peers on the left. Uh, there have been efforts to do a more comprehensive study of hiring patterns of uh, uh, looking at people in the entry-level market. Uh, the Association of American Law Schools have denied requests for that research. Um, they've allowed it for things like race and gender uh, to see if there are uh, there's evidence of racial disparities in hiring, for example. Um, but they have not allowed researchers access to the same data for looking at whether or not there is um, uh, ideological bias in hiring. And there is, is some work, and this was talked about in the last panel, um, that suggests that implicit bias and other things, uh, and perhaps in some cases conscious bias, um, uh, does affect uh, hiring, particularly in areas like constitutional law uh, and areas that um, where there is uh, uh, significant public policy implications. Um, I should say I, we haven't seen evidence yet, at least in, in law schools, of the same sort of dynamic of closed-mindedness that we see at places like Middlebury College or the Yale controversy over Halloween costumes. I like to think law schools are somewhat immune to that because the practice of law requires debate and exchange and being able to articulate points of view that one doesn't agree with. Um, the adversary process relies upon that. So perhaps law schools are inoculated from some of the intolerance uh, that we've seen uh, at undergraduate institutions. The other possibility is that this is something of a generational thing, and those students just haven't matriculated in sufficient numbers into law schools yet. Um, I, I hope it's the former. Um, uh, uh, certainly at my institution, we've seen no evidence uh, of, of that, and we certainly don't shy away from uh, uh, teaching uh, uh, the full range of subjects and points of view, um, but that is something uh, to, to pay attention to. Um, and this does manifest itself, I think, in the scholarship of uh, the, the problem of, of ideological uniformity. It does manifest itself in scholarship. It manifests itself a lot in the um, uh, kind of practice work or the, or the activism of legal academics, the blind spots, the fact that not only did most legal academics not agree with the challenges to the Affordable Care Act, 
I think it's fair to say most legal academics didn't understand the challenges to the Affordable Care Act, didn't understand why a mandate to purchase insurance was qualitatively different than the other sorts of things that the Supreme Court had allowed under the Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause before. And that, that continues to be a problem, although I think it's a problem that is declining. Um, the, the good news, I think, is that, is that the, the libertarian ideas have an increasing influence in a large number of areas of law. Um, the, the volume of scholarship that takes either explicitly or implicitly a libertarian point of view or merely just accepts uh, libertarian premises, whether to support them or, or to challenge them, uh, is in, it has increased over time, both in volume and in influence. This began, I think, uh, in many respects with the law and economics movement. Uh, and many scholars across uh, the political spectrum recognize that economic analysis of law is very powerful. And in certain areas, antitrust being the best example, uh, this certainly led to changes in our understanding of economic organization and, and not only influenced scholarship, but I think ended up influencing the courts as well. I think we're beginning to see something similar in what's referred to as the new institutional economics and a greater understanding of the way property-based institutions and private ordering uh, allow people alone and in groups to solve problems that we might otherwise turn to government for. A lot of work there that's very positive. Certainly, uh, originalist scholarship is, is hugely uh, important these days and has expanded dramatically. It used to be originalism was uh, nothing more than, 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 than a basis to criticize the Warren Court. Uh, it is now a really robust uh, area of research. Uh, people like Randy Barnett, who, who Roger mentioned, uh, Michael McConnell, uh, the folks at University of San Diego that have a, a center that focuses on the study of, of, of originalism are really having a significant influence and are being engaged across the political spectrum such that uh, there is now even a group of progressive scholars that, that, that characterize themselves as originalism, that, that recognize that in constitutional debate, uh, whether one likes the idea of the original public meaning or not, that is something that one has to engage with. And we, we can debate whether the original public meaning is, is of the Constitution is perfectly libertarian. Uh, it's certainly more libertarian than what we have now. And so uh, what uh, active debate on originalism is, is, is very positive. And, and Randy Barnett now has a center at Georgetown, uh, like Michael McConnell's center at Stanford, that not only promotes scholarship and research, but also fellowships and the like that are helping uh, uh, helping a new generation of original scholars uh, in the academy, and, and this is uh, and Richard Epstein is, is involved with the center at at NYU that's doing something similar. Uh, one, one of our former interns is now a fellow with with Randy Center at good, Georgetown. Good, Burnett. Yes, uh, who does very good work. Um, there are enough folks that are willing to openly characterize themselves as conservative or libertarian that the Federalist Society now actually has a faculty division, something that would have been unheard of 15 years ago. That has uh, active conferences. Uh, and, and organizations like the Institute for Justice and others are, are getting involved in the clinical part of legal education, which, again, 15 years ago would have been unheard of. Uh, clinical education used to be about uh, either you know, representing tenants in landlord-tenant disputes or trying to find ways to get law students uh, to file lawsuits that, that, that force economic redistribution. Uh, there are now uh, legal clinics that that represent entrepreneurs, that represent individuals that are fighting regulation, that are, that are, um, are trying to uh, promote economic liberty, and that's all to the good. The last thing I'll just say in terms of how this has affected the academic legal climate, because like a true law professor, I'm likely, or I'm on the verge of going over my time. Um, uh, about I guess, 10 years ago, there was a case called Fair versus Rumsfeld, uh, filed by a lot of legal academics. Uh, uh, opposing something called the Solomon Amendment, which said that universities that received federal money uh, had to allow military recruiters on campus on the same terms as other recruiters. And one of the obvious arguments that one could have made against uh, this, um, this requirement was that it was an, imposition, an unfair uh, imposition or, or condition placed on spending. Uh, and liberal economics were not willing to make this argument. And they, one reason they weren't willing to make this argument is because they were afraid of the potentially libertarian implications of saying that when the government writes you a check, it can impose all sorts of other burdens on you. Instead, they tried to make some First Amendment free association arguments that, that, that were so unpersuasive they couldn't convince a single justice on the Supreme Court. What's interesting is we're seeing now, and, and maybe this is purely instrumental, but I think it actually reflects a broader change in just the, the, the intellectual environment in areas like challenges to the sanctuary city order 
uh, executive order that, that the Trump administration has put out, some of these same liberal academics are now willing to embrace the sort of conditional spending arguments that, again, have, have very serious and positive implications for federalism uh, and, uh, and, and for limiting government uh, in that context that they weren't willing to before. And the, the mere willingness that they're willing to make those arguments and take them seriously, I think, is evidence of the fact that, that libertarian scholarship is, is having an influence uh, on the way people think about issues and, and what arguments they're willing to make uh, in court. And I will stop there because- Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Um, as we saw in the last uh, panel, uh, looking at the zeitgeist and changes there, uh, the Constitution came up only toward the end. And yet, at the end of the day, that is the institution that we all point to, hoping that it will protect us from going over the edge. Um, as de Tocqueville said uh, back uh, at the beginning of the uh, 19th century, that in America, sooner or later, every political issue becomes a legal issue before the court. Therefore, it falls to the judges and justices on the courts to say what the law is and ultimately what the Constitution permits or does not permit. And so much of our work here at Cato, much of the work in the academic world, working through institutions like the Federalist Society, which is 60,000 strong lawyers, judges, law professors, and upcoming uh, law students, uh, which has a chapter in every law school in the country, working through institutions like that, the Institute for uh, Humane Studies, the Institute for Justice, and so forth, we are trying to address not simply the zeitgeist, as in the last panel, but also the climate on the court where the buck ultimately stops in our system of government. And one of the ways we do it here at Cato is through filing friend of the court briefs, amicus briefs, and nobody has been more important in expanding our program there than our next speaker, Ilya Shapiro. Ilya is a senior fellow here at Cato. He is the uh, editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and he has increased our uh, amicus program. We now file, he's filed over 200 briefs with the Supreme Court and with, more recently, lower uh, courts and even some state Supreme Courts. Um, Ilya uh, was uh, special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq and rule of law issues just before he came to Cato. And before that, he uh, practiced at Pattenbach's uh, uh, Cleary and Gottlieb. He was a clerk on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit uh, with Judge uh, uh, E. Grady Jolly. Uh, he's a graduate of um, uh, Princeton. Uh, he has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. He speaks six languages. He'll talk to us today in English. Uh, Ilya? Uh, thanks, Roger. And uh, you were talking about uh, Jonathan's internship experience. I did not intern at Cato, but I did intern at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, another friendly organization that we work with often on briefs and, and other things. Uh, and when I did, it was 19 years ago now as a Koch Summer Fellow, I actually occupied John's office. He was then the Director of Environmental Policy <laughs> at CEI. But that summer, he was away at, at Perk in, in Montana, and I got to have a, a corner office as an intern. That was very nice. Um, well, look, uh, one of the interesting uh, things that Roger alluded to with the uh, generational change, and, and, and John got into this as well, of, of uh, teaching about the proper role of a judge, not just uh, legal theory, but uh, the judicial mode or the judicial role, finding a third way that's neither activist nor pacifist nor restrained. Um, uh, and, and this kind of theory of engagement or being an active judge or just, you know, deciding the law and letting the uh, uh, external political or whatever chips fall where they may, uh, that uh, uh, judges uh, who are uh, younger, uh, uh, younger in judicial years means people in their, you know, 40s and 50s rather than 60s and 70s, uh, are more amenable uh, to that kind of approach. Uh, and you see that uh, first and foremost with our newest justice, Neil Gorsuch, uh, who has had a relationship with, with Cato, published a, a report uh, with us after uh, he finished clerking on the court uh, 25 years ago. Uh, and uh, uh, to this day, uh, sends us notes. We, we send the Cato Supreme Court review to all federal appellate judges 
Uh, and each year I get a note from about half a dozen of them, and Gorsuch tends to be, uh, has tended to be one of them. So uh, again, receptive to these ideas that you don't have to be a potted plant, and you don't have to rewrite the law however you want. You can just you know, judge uh, uh, according to uh, the theory, and we'll, we'll debate whether your theory uh, is uh, correct. And I think that's very salutary. And indeed, Gorsuch is not an outlier uh, in that regard. If you look at uh, what I called in a blog post uh, Trump's fabulous list of terrific judges you know, that he put out about a year ago, uh, May of last year, uh, and then added to it uh, in September, ultimately there were 21 people on that list, a fair number of them uh, are uh, very amenable to that kind of judicial engagement rather than being of the uh, more traditional conservative judicial restraint, Scalia and Bork school. Uh, and that's heartening. Not all of them, uh, but uh, uh, many of them. And many of them have spoken at Cato, f for that matter. Diane Sykes of the Seventh Circuit was a Simon lecturer at our Constitution Day conference several years ago. And, and uh, Don Willett, uh, Supreme Court Justice of, of Texas and the, uh, uh, the biggest uh, tweeting judge uh, uh, in the country, which is kind of like being the tallest midget, I suppose. But nevertheless, uh, I recommend uh, his Twitter feed to you, uh, as well as his very important opinions that are striking down arbitrary Texas laws on occupational licensing and a whole host uh, of other things. Uh, this is uh, unusual. You wouldn't expect someone like Donald Trump to be leading the uh, uh, legal revolution of uh, libertarianism or judicial engagement, uh, but uh, because he uh, at least is smart enough to defer to excellent legal advisors at the Federalist Society, my friends elsewhere, uh, who is running at least legal policy, judicial nominations through, uh, is doing a fantastic job. I mean, I wish Leonard Leo, who was in charge of the Gorsuch selection, would just be in charge of the rest of the government, I think would be a, a lot better off. But, but anyhow, um, uh, if, if you go through uh, that list, uh, this is not some sort of Trumpian populism at play. This is uh, a list that uh, any Republican, uh, well, anybody would be, would be celebrated for. It would be a, 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 a great list, uh, whether the president had been Cruz or Rubio or Jeb Bush uh, or, or anyone else. Uh, and so uh, as we look forward to future uh, uh, vacancies, there are rumors about whether Justice Kennedy will be retiring next month. Uh, who knows? Uh, but uh, Trump doesn't face any political incentive to go off the list. Uh, or if he goes off list, it would be someone that equally has a Federalist Society imprimatur. There are only a, a small handful of names that uh, uh, weren't included the, in the list that, that would have been considered simply because they lived in coastal elite areas. If you look at that list of 20, they were all from the heartland and you know, not the Acela Corridor, not the West Coast. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and we'll see uh, the, the lower court nominees as well, which are uh, equally or maybe even more important than the Supreme Court nominees because at the end of the day, every four-year term, a president gets to appoint uh, nearly a fifth uh, of the federal judiciary. So a, a, a two-term presidency, that's nearly 40%. And that's significant. When President Obama took office, one of the 13 federal circuits had a majority of uh, 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 Democratic appointees on them, now nine do. Uh, so uh, elections have consequences in that way. Uh, and if this administration con continues in the vein on nominations as it has been, I think that's generally a, a good thing for us. And what does it mean for our amicus brief program? As Roger said, we have been increasing our number of filings, not necessarily on the merits cases before the Supreme Court, but we've learned, the academic literature bears this out, that you can be more influential as an amicus, uh, as a friend of the court, uh, in uh, the cert petition stage. Getting the court to take a case is two-thirds or more of the battle right there. And so we've shifted gradually uh, our, uh, some of our focus towards that. And then, of course, the, the, the Supreme Court only decides 70 cases a year or less. Most of the actions in the lower court. So we've been in ramping up our efforts uh, in, uh, in the lower courts. Uh, last year, we filed 66 briefs overall, not just in the Supreme Court. This year, we're somehow on pace for 75. I was just looking at the statistics. Uh, and every year, even if, you know, I don't want to take credit, we had a great year. Four years ago, we went uh, 15 and 3. The next year, we went 10 and 1. I'm not going to tell you that, you know, our, the one loss record is uh, indicative of uh, a whole lot. Uh, it, it's good, uh, but more importantly, every year, even last year when we went four and four, we handily beat the government, which we consider to be our biggest uh, rival. 
uh, at, at the court. Uh, and so as the court shifts, uh, you know, we're going to read the wins and see what kind of cases we want to be involved in, gradually pushing the envelope so, you know, if there's a, a very good challenge to an occupational licensing law, say, well, the party that we're supporting can't make uh, the purest, say, intellectual constitutionalist arguments. They're trying to win the case for their client. But we, as a friend of the court, can. And so oftentimes by presenting that, uh, that pure theoretical uh, perspective, we can make that winning side look like the reasonable moderate side, which it often very much is. And so uh, that's part of the strategy that, that, that goes into this. Um, uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there, Roger. Okay. I'll, I'll look forward All to your right. questions. Well, thank you, uh, Ilya. We're now going to hear from uh, Tim Sandifer, who is Vice President for Litigation at the Cold Goldwater Institute, and he's also an adjunct scholar here at Cato. Uh, before uh, joining uh, Goldwater, he served for 15 years as a litigator at the Pacific Legal Foundation, where he won important victories for economic liberty in California of all states, as well as several other states. Um, he is the author of three Cato books, uh, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century America, which he co-authored with his wife, Christina, who's with us today. Uh, the, that, was, that just came out in its second version. Um, the cornerstone, or the conscience of uh, the Constitution uh, in, 19, in 2014, uh, which George Will uh, cited uh, in one of his columns. And uh, his earlier book was The Right to Earn a Living, Economic Freedom and the Law, which we published in 2010. But even more recently than those three, he's just uh, published uh, The Right to Earn a Living, um, excuse me, the, the, um, permission. the Permission Society, uh, how the ruling class turns our freedoms and privileges and what we can uh, do about it, uh, which has just been uh, published by Encounter Books. Um, his scholarly articles cover a wide range of legal issues, including the legal issues that we find in Shakespeare and in ancient Greek drama. He is really a polymath. He's going to talk about uh, life in the trenches because so much of his work has been trial work at the state and federal level, uh, both uh, at the um, trial level and at the appellate level. So he can speak to that and the uh, prospects for the future in that area. Tim? Thank you. So uh, some years ago, I, there was a book that came out called The Rise of the Conservative Public Interest Legal Movement by Stephen Tellis. And he divides the history of litigation in defense of constitutional freedoms, <clears throat> from our perspective, into basically two stages. There was the first stage, it began in 1973 with the foundation of the Pacific Legal Foundation, which was the first of these organizations that was created. The story goes that uh, then Governor Reagan was frustrated by the ACLU and other groups opposing his welfare reform programs and expressed his frustration to some, uh, some of his staff members who were lawyers, and they said, well, why don't we start our own version that'll be you know, litigating in defense of, of economic freedom and property rights, and so they founded Pacific Legal Foundation, and similar groups followed after that. The second generation, uh, according to TELUS, begins in the early 90s with the foundation of the Institute for Justice, and I, everybody, I'm sure, is familiar with IJ, and what made their approach unique is a focus on humanizing these issues, on storytelling, on demonstrating how abstract, abstract constitutional issues affect ordinary people in their daily lives. And that really was revolutionary in, in this field and what we do. Um, I think, in fact, the first generation of organizations has learned a lot from that second generation, so that now if you look at, at Pacific Legal Foundation and similar groups, you see how they, they too are now emphasizing as heavily as they can storytelling and illustrating these principles so that other people, can, ordinary people can understand them. On the other hand, it's been said that law is the trailing edge of culture, and I think that, that is very true. The lawyers come in and litigate a case, and they can win it, but... It takes a lot of work in the in the trenches, in the according, you know, the journalists and the social scientists and the, the theorists and the scholars. They have to lay the groundwork for a successful litigation to, to really make a big difference. I think what we've accomplished in this second generation, which we owe largely to people like Chip Meller, John Kramer, Clint Bullock, is teaching people these stories. But what we owe to Cato is is building that theoretical basis. There's a very famous physicist, Niels Bohr, who once said, 
old theories never die, just old theorists. <laughs> You're, I, I actually once kind of got into a little bit of a shouting match with Justice Scalia at a, at a CLE over the slaughterhouse cases once. There's no way I'm going to persuade Antonin Scalia to change his mind about the slaughterhouse cases. I think what we've accomplished is to raise up a generation of young lawyers who is rethinking the post-New Deal orthodoxy and so forth. And we're starting to see them advance to the next stage in the legal profession. So in that sense, I'm very optimistic in the long run. In fact, we in Arizona just saw Clint Bullock get appointed to the Arizona Supreme Court, thus vacating the office, which now I occupy. Thank, you know, I'm fortunate for that. Uh, and so I think we're going to see a lot of progress. One of the, uh, Roger mentioned my book, the, the Right to Earn a Living, which was published in 2010 largely fell uh, from the presses without notice from particularly anybody, uh, until a couple years ago when Justice Willett on the Texas Supreme Court wrote a separate opinion in a case called Patel. He wrote a concurring opinion in that case in which he said for many pages, very eloquently argued, you know, we need to take a look at economic liberty as protected under the state constitution here in Texas. And he cited the heck out of that book. I think that shows how you, know, you can't really measure the long-term consequences of this work. Now, as far as pr practical litigation is concerned, I graduated law school in 2002. That was the year that Craig Miles versus Giles was decided. That case was an IJ case challenging the constitutionality of a licensing law for um, uh, people who directed funerals, funeral directors. The client in that case didn't want to direct funerals. He wanted to sell coffins. And in Tennessee, you couldn't sell coffins unless you had a license as a funeral director, which required you to undergo years of training, learning how to do things like embalming bodies, when all this man wanted to do was literally sell a box. And in fact, in Tennessee, it was not legally required that you be buried in a coffin. In fact, former governors of Tennessee had not been buried in coffins. Anyway, Institute for Justice filed a lawsuit and went up to the, um, to the Tennessee Federal District Court, and the court ruled in their favor and struck down that licensing requirement as irrational under the Federal Due Process Clause under the 14th Amendment. It was the first case of its kind since the New Deal, first time since the 1930s that a federal court had ever said that a state occupational licensing law was irrational under the Due Process Clause. And that case was upheld on appeal on the Sixth Circuit. Since then, there's developed this split among the circuits in which Pacific Legal Foundation and the Institute for Justice have been instrumental, in which the 10th Circuit and sort of uh, the, the First Circuit say that government can pass laws to restrict economic opportunity simply because it wants to, even if it has no connection whatsoever to protecting the public which I consider a shockingly radical conception that violates 800 years of Anglo-American common law uh, jurisprudence. But in any case, on the other side are circuits like the Craig Miles case, the Sixth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and, and uh, the Fifth Circuit of Court of Appeals that say no. If the government's going to restrict economic opportunity, there must be at least some reasonable connection to protecting the general public. It can't just hand out economic favors simply because it wants to. The Supreme Court, unfortunately, has refused time and again to take up this split, but I think that shows tremendous advantage that the libertarian um, economic liberty jurisprudence has, has made. Um, incidentally, I built on some of that jurisprudence in a case that I litigated only a couple of years ago in Kentucky, challenging a licensing law for moving companies in that state. In most states in this country, you want to run a moving company, you first have to get permission from all of the existing moving companies in the state. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That's called a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity or a Certificate of Need Law. That's the law not only for moving companies, but for car dealerships, for taxi companies, for liquor stores in some places, and for hospitals. In many states, you cannot open a hospital or expand the hospital's operation without first getting permission from the other hospitals in the region. We at the Goldwater Institute are currently litigating a case in the Georgia Supreme Court challenging the constitutionality of that state's certificate of need law for hospitals under the state's pro prohibition on monopolies. The state constitution has a prohibition on monopolies. So we're arguing under that. I think that, by the way, is a second stage in which we made a lot of progress, is emphasizing the importance of state constitutions of, as protecting individual freedom if the federal constitution fails to do so. That's a, a region I hope to see a lot more expansion on in the future. 
Now, I tried to make a list before coming here. I'd make a list of some of the progress we've made since 1973. Just for full disclosure, I was born in 1976. Uh, and I, as I mentioned, I graduated from law school in 2002. So some of this stuff was before my time. But consider some of the advantages, some of the- I'm the youngest one on the panel. For the <laughs> <laughs> we made some of this progress. Um, Anti-sodomy laws invalidated. I think Lawrence versus Texas, to me, is the, the litmus test of a libertarian. If you disagree with, litmus, with Lawrence versus Texas, in my view, you don't belong in the room. Um, I think that's a massive victory for individual freedom in this country. Uh, Same-sex marriage, constitutionally protected. Four dissenting opinions in Kelo versus New London. You remember Kelo, the, the big eminent domain case in 2005? It was a loss, right? Five to four. But on the other hand, think of it this way. We had four dissenting opinions in that case. Four Supreme Court justices who said there was something that was too much for eminent domain under the federal constitution. That was the first time even a single justice had done that. If you look back at the previous eminent domain cases in, in American jurisprudence, there was never a Supreme Court justice who came out and said, we think this goes too far under the state's eminent domain powers. It just had never happened. So that's tremendous victory, and I think we, we might see some progress there. Uh, gun rights protected under the Second Amendment, obviously a tremendous success. Um, and a real beginning of, of looking at privileges or immunities jurisprudence under the 14th Amendment. Not a lot of progress in uh, court opinions, but we got the Supreme Court to take up the issue, and Justice Thomas wrote that masterful opinion in the McDonald case, the Chicago gun case, on that issue. Um, we've seen independent state constitutionalism. I mentioned uh, uh, the certificate of need laws. There's also gift clauses that prohibit the government from handing out taxpayer money to, to people that it likes. Uh, special law clauses that prohibit the government from directing laws to just one particular individual or small group. We've seen progress on those, on those fronts. Reconsidering administrative deference. All this deference to these administrative agencies and whatever they say, the court just says, yes, sir, you know. Um, we've seen Justice Gorsuch now, who, who has taken on that issue, and that's his most famous opinion. Speech protections for things like flag burning, for zoning restrictions on bookstores, those are now, are, have been reviewed under the First Amendment, or for restrictions on tattoo parlors. We at the Goldwater Institute may, obtained the first court opinion, I believe, to declare tattooing protected under the First Amendment. My predecessor, Clint Bullock, litigated that case and got a tattoo. He's now the first visibly tattooed state Supreme Court justice in the United States. <laughs> Some of the losses, though. We, um, I, think, I, I was trying to think of what the worst loss is in the past couple decades. I, in my opinion, it's Raich versus Gonzalez, the case that upheld the constitutionality of the Controlled Substances Act and included an opinion by Justice Scalia, which I find unfortunate. Uh, We've seen some, unfortunately, so little progress and even maybe some backsliding on regulatory takings law. This is where the government doesn't actually take your property outright, which would be the honest way of doing it, but dishonestly regulates your value down to where it's practically non-existent and then refuses to pay you for what it's taken. In 1987, Pacific Legal Foundation got a great opinion in a case called Nolan that said that there are limits to the government's ability to do that. But since then, local and state governments have basically ignored that opinion and gotten away with it time and time and time and time again. Uh, and fortunately, the, the Supreme Court just recently took up an, a case called Murr versus Wisconsin. It's a bit complicated, but it, it's a spin on this issue. And we got our fingers crossed that we'll get a favorable opinion out of that. And then, of course, Obamacare, which is such a weird opinion. I don't know how to categorize it as a loss. It's such a bizarre case. I mean, in some ways, well, it was- we, a, we won everything but the case. But the opinion, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the court said, yeah, you can't force people to do stuff under the Commerce Clause, and, and, and there's limits on the federal government's ability to, to restrict what the money that states get in order to make them do their will. But then it's some kind of tax that's not provided for in the Constitution and that apparently doesn't need to originate in the House and so forth. Um, what are the biggest obstacles we faced? I think the biggest obstacle we face right now is the entrenchment of the ideology of judicial restraint, which was a foolish progressive notion that was just imbibed unquestioningly by conservatives in the 60s and 70s and early 80s and is a huge handicap for us who think that the Constitution actually means something and that judges are there to do a job, which is to enforce that Constitution. I think we're making a lot of progress on that. A couple years ago at the National Federal Society debate, at the Federal Society Convention, they held a debate between Randy Barnett and J. Harvey Wilkinson of the, of the uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
And to see that debate occur at all, let alone to see the, the audience basically side with Barnett, that courts have been too deferential and that they need to step up and play their role in our checks and balances system was amazing. And I think the next generation of law students who will be the lawyers of the, of, of the, a few years after that and then judges a few years after that, I think that's a, they're, they're listening to that. And that's, that's grounds for real optimism. Another real obstacle we have is state court judges who refuse to do their job in enforcing the state constitution differently from the federal constitution. A lot of them just sort of rubber stamp, they follow what the federal courts have said about the federal constitution as if that were their own state jurisprudence when there's no reason for doing so. And persuading them to see those two things as different is, is kind of hard. Finally, I think the biggest obstacle we face is what I call Justice Roberts' uh, Julius Caesar problem. Imagine that a man comes up to you on the street and says, I am Julius Caesar. Now, you would immediately think, this man is crazy. But that's not how Chief Justice Roberts would do it. Chief Justice Roberts would say, if I thought this man had just said, I am Julius Caesar, he would be crazy. Therefore, I will interpret what he said as, I admire Julius Caesar, <laughs> and therefore he's sane. Right? That's the kind of reasoning we've been seeing out of a lot of these court opinions where the court will basically rewrite the statute in order to rationalize its passage. And yet there's all the difference in the world between I admire Julius Caesar and I am Julius Caesar. And the purpose of the court is to protect us against Julius Caesar. Now, I, I want to conclude by saying that. litigation, you're welcome to it, all of you. I don't believe, I don't believe in intellectual property rights. Um, <laughs> But I want to emphasize again, litigation must be part of this complete breakfast, right? Litigation doesn't change the world hardly ever. The only case you can really come up with where the court really changed the world, Brown versus Board of Education. And yet a decade after Brown versus Board of Education, the schools were still segregated. Litigation has to be part of an overall movement that includes the social activists, the researchers, the policymakers, the political people. We have to work together to advance our vision of constitutional liberty. Yesterday, uh, Peter Gettler said, our argument is inherently more difficult. And that's absolutely true. Um, I, what I love about litigation is that we get to go in there and put these principles into practice in people's lives, but we face a much more difficult uphill battle than any previous generation of lawyers faced. Um, even in the days of slavery, you could find judges who believed that slavery was unconstitutional. But you go in front of a federal judge and say, you know, I think the, the entire administrative state is missing from the US Constitution. I think the entire idea of deference to judicial agencies violates the principles of due process of law, and you'll get laughed out at most courtrooms. So it's a huge uphill battle, and I, we ought to be congratulating ourselves tremendously on the progress that we've made. Well, thank you, Tim. In fact, uh, to pick up on your last point, um, we have uh, the Simon Lecture coming up at the conclusion of the Constitution Day Symposium, and it will be given this year by Professor um, Philip uh, Hamburger from Columbia University, whose magnificent tome, 600 plus pages, is entitled, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? Which he answers in the affirmative, and so please tune into that. You can see if you're not here for the Constitution Day Symposium, you will find it um, uh, being live and Tim, Tim hit on last year's Simon Lecture as well, which was by Clint Bullock, yes. uh, which will be published in, in, in the next Supreme Court review, which was on state constitutionalism. That's right. Uh, let me just uh, open up just a little bit of discussion. Maybe we'll have time for a question or two as well. Tim mentioned uh, his exchange with uh, Justice Scalia. I've had several uh, uh, scintillating exchanges with Justice Scalia, one of which occurred in 1993 when we invited him over for lunch. And uh, after lunch, we had a, a spirited discussion. At one point, I said to him, Nino, when are you going to ever revive the doctrine of enumerated powers? He said, oh, Roger, we lost that battle a long time ago. I said, well, thank you for that counsel of despair. Um, and so what I want to, of course, two years later, the court did finally address that in that case that I mentioned uh, in 1995, where we had written the study that we rifled in from Glenn Harlan Reynolds, 
who teaches at the University of Tennessee, entitled Kids, Guns, and the Commerce Clauses, the Court Ready for Constitutional Government. And there, Scalia came out on the right side, although uh, the opinion was written by Chief Justice Rehnquist, and in it he said, we start with first principles. The Constitution establishes a government of delegated and limited powers. Now, you hadn't heard that for 58 years in the city of Washington, and it awoke uh, the city up from its dogmatic slumbers, if I may quote Immanuel Kant to that effect. So Rehnquist is woke, huh? Uh, yes. Oh, oh. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, those of you who don't follow this terminology, look it up. W-O-K-E. Um, anyway, let me put a question to you uh, folks. Um, what, where do you see the future after Rach, the California medical marijuana case, and NFIB, where the court did say the Commerce Clause is limited, it isn't a power of Congress to regulate anything and everything. Where do you see this going? Because it chipped away only at the edges of the problem. It does not go at the core issues. John? Yeah, well, I, I think in, in, on this, the, the Trump presidency is actually something of a blessing, and, and this is why. We ducked um, a bullet, believe me, with the Supreme well, Court. No, but I think on this, I don't mean just on the nominations, and, and, and you know, there will be lower court nominations soon, whether there's another Supreme Court nominee uh, this summer or not, and, and there's good reason to believe that they will be, be strong appointments. Yeah. I, I, I'm more talking in terms of the, the types of arguments that are made. So in the Commerce Clause context, after Lopez, there was a case called Morrison, which was a Commerce Clause challenge um, to the Violence Against Women Act, or to a one provision of it, and the Supreme Court struck that provision down, um, deciding that, that gender-motivated violence, however terrible it is, is not commerce among the several states, and so therefore can't be reached by the Commerce Clause. After that, um, uh, there were, when, when some federal abortion laws were passed, a lot of the progressive groups that, that opposed restrictions on abortion chose not to make Commerce Clause arguments in their, any of their challenges to federal abortion laws. Uh, and that seems kind of odd, because it seems just as gender-motivated violence doesn't seem to be commerce. <clears throat> one could argue that terminating a pregnancy, whatever one thinks about it otherwise, uh, is not commerce among the several states, uh, and, and that there was room to make Commerce Clause arguments against laws uh, that were supported by conservatives and opposed by liberals, and use the, the doctrine of enumerated powers as a two-edged sword, uh, as a doctrine that limits power not merely power used for one side or the other. Uh, and that was deliberate on their part. Um, and as I mentioned in my opening remarks, in, in some of the uh, challenges to some of the Trump administration's initiatives, that reluctance to use what were seen as conservative arguments about enumerated powers seems to be slipping away, either because of change of the intellectual environment, a desire to win, or a belief that, that the Trump administration just requires different tactics, some of the same liberal groups, some of the same academics are willing to use federalism-based arguments, enumerated powers-based uh, arguments to challenge some of the Trump administration initiatives. And so I, I, I think um, that, that creates a huge opportunity because a, a, a problem for our constitutional arguments historically has been is they were seen as a stalking horse for a particular uh, political agenda. That, the, that enumerated powers would only be used to try and strike down laws that progressives liked and that conservatives didn't. Uh, but, it, but a recognition that this is not about liberal conservative. It's about the proper scope and power of the federal government, whoever's in charge, um, is really important. And, and I think there actually is an opportunity for uh, some cross-ideological uh, efforts to restrain the efforts of the Trump administration to use federal power for what are quote unquote conservative ends. And so I think there's an opportunity there and I'm, and I'm hopeful. Or Tim, you want to add to any of that? I'd love to get to some questions. Okay, good. Let's open it up to you folks. Uh, wait for the microphone to come and uh, we'll so take- I, I give a talk often, one of my most popular for the Federal Society on uh, what John was talking about in the context of marijuana that I title High on Federalism. I think there's video of it somewhere. The negative version of that is, is federalism up in smoke. Ah. I'm interested in any of you answering this question. Um, what do you think of Trump's intention or attempts to break up the circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and would that be a good thing? Tim, you have litigated out in that yeah, area a lot. I, ha I actually, I've supported the idea of breaking up the Ninth Circuit since long before this came up. I, it just, just as a practical matter, it's too big, it's too overburdened. 
I mean, the, there was a story, was it the Washington Post, about the wait list for, now for even a hearing for immigration judges. I'm, the, it's, it's simply unreasonable when you, I, I've, like, as mentioned, I've been before the Ninth Circuit. It's a year and a half between briefing and oral argument and another year and a half after oral argument before you get an opinion. Uh, now, some cases get faster than that because they get prioritized because they're death penalty cases or they're immigration cases or what have you, but that just means the rest of us have to wait even longer in line. So I think it should be broken up. Exactly how to do that, I don't know. There's resistance to making a single state its own circuit for political reasons, which I think are probably overblown, but I understand that. So what? Make it, you know, California, Hawaii, and Alaska, or something like that. You know, California and Alaska, because there's nobody in Alaska anyway, so it won't hurt anybody to be lumped in with California, you know. Uh, but something like that, I Hawaii think. Why in the Pacific Islands? You know, yeah. Marianas or something. You know, I've actually been looking at this. I've had this research in my briefcase for a while. I've been meaning to write an op-ed. And the reason to break up the Ninth Circuit is, is specifically what Tim said. It's not because you're going to get, if you break it up, you're going to get less left-wing opinions. Or no, you'll get twice you. as many left-wing opinions. From that California circuit, but then you limit the damage uh, effectively. And you have a circuit that is of the same size of, as, as the others rather than this unwieldy beast. We can saw off California and let it float out into the... Apparently, they're working on it themselves. Yeah. Well, this is why I always say that Arizona needs to put the wall on their western border, not its southern one. <laughs> 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 Bob? There's, there's always a lot of discussion in, when this is the topic about the changing views, uh, changing point of view of the Supreme Court. That would suggest that a justice or several justices have evolved or changed their opinion. But almost all of the change is a result of the political process. A, a president with a different point of view gets in, and that president gets to make appointments. So how much change in the thinking of a, a justice has taken place, as opposed to the mere practical change in who's on the court because of who the president is at the time. Well, uh, I think that there's been a real change in the thinking about the proper role of the court. And that's what we've been very importantly involved in doing. I mean, it's Gorsuch is approaching the Constitution very differently than Scalia did. I think we're going to see that uh, because he is conversant with these, I mean, it's a generational shift, I think, conversant yeah. with the ideas that the older judges were not. And it began during the Reagan years when you started to put people on the court who, who were not just workaday lawyers, but came from the, they, they, in fact, they, they emptied the law schools out in many respects of the few conservatives and libertarians that are there to fill the courts. And that made a significant change. I mean, there has been research showing that there are, there are some justices that definitely did quote unquote evolve. Justice Stevens being the best example, you can find decisions of his from the 1970s that are contradicted by decisions of his from 30 years later. Um, but so, so both are a role. And, um, you know, there is a belief that um, uh, the experience that someone had before they were a judge, uh, and particularly before they were on the Supreme Court, probably affects the likelihood that they might change. Because when you're a Supreme Court justice, you're under you're in the spotlight, and you're under a lot of pressure, uh, uh, and your opinions may be subject to a lot of criticism. Uh, and the New York Times has already editorialized <clears throat> once or twice against Justice Gorsuch because you know he didn't vote the right way in, in, in on some on a particular order, um, and. Some people withstand that kind of pressure differently, you know, better than others. Um, but uh, it's certainly both. I mean, yeah. four more <clears throat> Justice Gorsuches would, of course, dramatically change the court. Um, but someone like Justice Stevens, uh, Justice O'Connor, some Justice Kennedy, some certainly uh, changed their approach over their time. Well, and keep in mind, how, you know, how often does anybody admit that they're wrong? I mean, I've, my, my wife's here. She can probably, probably tell you it's probably around six in my case, you know. Um, and these are Supreme Court justices, so they're, they're at the top of the profession, and I it's their that, job to, to I, not I change their mind. I find that I'm wrong whenever I disagree with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, these, it's very unlikely, but it does happen. There are judges who will come, justices who will come out and, and change their minds over <clears> time, but hardly anybody ever changes their mind. This is important because we need to never give in to the temptation of saying that we're trying to take America back 
to a previous golden age of constitutional uh, legitimacy or something, you know, as we're often characterized. We're not at all trying to do that. Nothing has ever been repealed. Nothing ever is really repealed. Not even, not even prohibition was actually repealed. If you look at the repeal amendment, it says we're repealing this, but states can do such and such. It didn't even actually just repeal its prohibition, right? So you never go back and undo wrongdoing. You always, what we're trying to do is as America moves forward, keep it on a, direct, on a path toward the principles articulated in the Declaration of Independence that are the guide star for understanding our Constitution. Yep, that's go, what we're trying to, to do. To go to uh, what is underlying Bob's question, though, and that's this. Ultimately, the interpretation of the, of, the, of the Constitution is a political matter in the sense that the appointments happen through the political sure, process. Absolutely. And nowhere we, did we see the contrast in that more clearly than in the recent confirmation debates in the Senate Judiciary Committee, where we had two camps and they couldn't agree, disagree more about the proper role of the court on one side, you had people saying the Constitution is there to preserve the rule of law. On the other side, you had people demanding that the nominee tell them how he's going to vote on abortion, on affirmative action, on this, that, or the other thing. In other words, we're going to make the decision in the Senate Judiciary Committee by political standards, not in the court by legal standards. It was that worse is, than that, Roger. I mean, it, because- Even worse than that? Oh my God. Because the discussion, and this is, this is very, I mean, this is something that we haven't talked about and we have to be wary of. Um, the discussion on, on half of that committee was, it's not about the law, it's about who won. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. why, why was the frozen trucker or, or, or the, 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 the special needs child being talked about so much? Because the discussion became, we should evaluate what a judge does based on whether or not we feel sympathy for or care about the, the winning or losing side. And, you know, as human beings, I think we should care about, about, about individuals, but that's not the, 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 the judge, the, not the job of a job of a judge. And that idea is incredibly corrosive if that becomes the way we think about the role of the judiciary. Uh, the rule of law depends upon principles being applied as neutrally as flawed human beings in robes are capable of doing, applying the principles that, and, and, and law that is provided to them. You know, we, we want to do everything we can to reinforce the idea that that is their job, not to look out into the gallery of a courtroom and say, well, I, I think that litigant is, is more sympathetic or is going to get me better press or is going to work, for, work better for me if I'm nominated to a higher court so I better side with them. I mean, that's, that's really something we need to protect against. Not for nothing does Lady Justice wear a blindfold. Right. And with that, let's draw this to a conclusion.